Goddag og godt nytår, og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi starter det nye år med en samtale med den britisk-israelske forfatter og historiker Arvi Schleim. Han er født i Bagdad i 1945 og udgav sidste år en temmelig opsigtsvækkende rendringsbog, der hedder Three Worlds Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Hello. Hello. I'm Arvi Schleim. And you are? I am Rune Lykkeberg. I'm the person talking to you. Yes. Very good. I den bog fortæller han om, hvordan det var at blive født og leve de første år i sit liv i Bagdad. Derefter blev han en ung mand i den nyoprettede stat Israel, inden han rejste til Storbritannien, hvor han boede hos en slægtning og blev uddannet historiker. Shleim er en af Israels nye historikere, som er en gruppe af israelske forskere, som fremlagde deres egne kritiske fortolkninger af Israels historie og af sionismens historie, og som blev store navne inden for en kritisk intellektuel tradition i Israel og i tænkningen omkring Mellemøsten. I sin bog Three Worlds Memoirs of an Arab Jew, der fortæller Shleim om det bagdad, han blev født ind i. Det var dengang en by, hvor der boede 500.000 mennesker, at dem var omkring en tredjedel Jøder. Og de levede ifølge islam relativt harmonisk sammen med muslimer og kristne og de andre minoriteter, der var i byen. Bagdad er for islam et nostalgisk minde om en by, hvor jøder og muslimer levede fredeligt side om side, uden at lade sig definere kulturelt, socialt eller politisk af deres religion, og i stedet for fandt sammen i et nyt metropolitant fællesskab. Irak var en relativt ny stat, opstået i det 20. århundrede, og Bagdad var dets hovedstad. I den by var familien Schleim velstående. Hans far var en velhavende forretningsmand. De boede i et meget stort hus og havde mange store tjenestefolk. Men da Schleim var fem år gammel, blev de tvunget til at forlade Irak, og i stedet for rejste de til den nyoprettede stat Israel. Schleim fortæller, hvordan de arabiske jøder, der ankom til Israel, når de landede i lufthavnen i Tel Aviv, blev oversprøjtet med insektfjerner og middel, som om de skulle renses, inden de skulle ind i den nye stat. Han fortæller, hvordan han fra starten oplevede sig som en underlægen jøde, fordi han var arabisk og ikke europæisk jøde. Når han skal forklare, hvorfor familien flyttede fra Irak til Israel, hvorfor de forlod det kosmopolitiske, harmoniske liv, de havde i Bagdad, siger han, det er der to grunde til. Den ene var arabisk nationalisme, og den anden var israelsk sionisme. Hele bogen handler således om ham eksistentielt, men han er egentlig bare en biperson, fordi det særlige ved Schleims livshistorie, det er, som han selv siger, at han var vidne til nogle meget, meget interessante brydninger og havde det privilegium og den forbandelse at leve i det, kineserne kalder for interessante tider. I den samtale, der følger, taler vi om hans egen livshistorie. Vi taler om forholdet mellem Israel og resten af Mellemøsten. Vi taler om, hvad det vil sige at være en arabisk jøde, og hvorfor det er en vigtig identitet for ham at holde fast i, og hvorfor det er, at han tror på, at palæstinenser og israelere kan finde sammen og leve i en fælles stat. Det er hans utopi. Man kan sige, at det er en utopi, der bygger på længslen efter hans barndomsverden. Men man kan også sige, at det er mindet om en anden tid, 
der gør, at Shlem, han kan se en anden fremtid end de fleste israelere og palæstinenser og os andre her. Han er 83 år gammel, men utroligt livlig og engageret. Her følger min samtale med Avi Shlem. Well, first, thank you for a wonderful book. I learned a lot from it. It's an unusual memoir. I was telling my wife about it, and she said, well, it sounds like a very humble autobiography, because I was telling her that in many of the chapters, you're not the protagonist even. And at times, I have the feeling that you're more interested in the history that you're part of than your own autobiography. But your autobiography also allows us to glimpse and sort of touch a very special time and some very special events and a special transition. You call it a revisionist track uh, in, the, in the preface. Why did you choose to write, write the book this way? Uh, because I'm a new historian in inverted commas. Uh, this is a school of historiography that emerged in Israel in the late 1980s. And the other members of this small group of so-called new historians are Ilan Pape and Benny Morris. But Benny Morris has, during the Second Intifada, veered to the extreme right. Um, and uh, he's now very critical of the Palestinians, but not critical of Israel. So I'm a revisionist historian. Um, and I've challenged with the other, my other colleagues, all the myths that have come to surround the birth of Israel in 1948 and the first Arab-Israeli war. Um, and uh, my book, Three Words, Memoirs of an Arab Jew, is a kind of an autobiography, but not a conventional autobiography. I think of it as an impersonal autobiography. The first half is a family history, and it's about the Jewish community in Iraq. And the second half is after we moved to Israel when I was five years old, and that that is more of an autobiography. My wife read it chapter by chapter as I was writing it, and she got to chapter five, and she said, I'm very worried, Avi, because I'm on chapter five and you weren't born yet. And I said to her, that's the whole point of the book. Uh, uh, it's not entirely about me, but it's an attempt to weave the personal with the political. So that's what I set out to achieve. The, the, the concept or the identity as an Arab Jew is emphasized in, in the title. And I was thinking that it's, that you have Brazilian Jews, you have Danish Jews, you have German Jews. We have all these different uh, Jew identities, but Arab Jew is for some even controversial. And for you, it's very important in the book that you are an, an Arab Jew, this identity. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, the concept of an Arab Jew is pivotal to this book. That's why it's there in the subtitle. But as you say, in Israel, it's very controversial. Israelis object to the term an Arab Jew because they say that um, there is no such a thing, that today you are either an Arab, 
in which case you can't be Jewish, and there are hardly any Jews left in the Arab world, or you are a Jew, or you are an Israeli, and you cannot, if you are a Jew, you cannot be uh, an Arab. So there is a dichotomy which I don't accept. And I never thought much about my identity uh, until I started writing this book about five years ago. Um, and then I discovered my roots, which are both Arab and Jewish. And there was no better way to describe my, my initial identity in the five, first five years of my life when I lived in Baghdad than that of an Arab Jew. So we were an Arab Jewish family. We lived in Baghdad. We spoke Arabic, only Arabic at home. Um, and our culture was Arab culture. Um, and our social customs were Arab customs. We lived in harmony with our neighbors. We have a lot of Muslim friends. And Muslim Jewish harmony was not for us an abstract ideal or idea. It was the everyday reality. Uh, so that's why, to me personally, the concept of an Arab Jew is all that is so uh, important. And there's been quite a lot of interest in the Arab world uh, in this book. And there's going to be an Arabic edition. It's because Arabs who were born after 1948, after Israel was created, have no idea that once upon a time, the landscape in the region was totally different and that there were Jews who lived everywhere. Jews who lived in uh, Iraq, uh, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Egypt, and throughout the, the North Africa, uh, in Libya, uh, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, and there was nothing unusual about it. But today, it's very abnormal and very unusual and very rare to have Arab Jews, to have Jews who are living in the Arab world. So I wanted to recreate, to recapture a world that was very true, very real for many of us, but a world that has been blown away um, in the 20th century by the cold winds of nationalism. It's nationalism that completely swept away this, this world that I tried to recreate. Reading about the Baghdad of your childhood, of your early childhood, I should say, is like visiting a cosmopolitan city that I must admit I didn't know existed where a third of the population were Jewish. And you described how your own family was part of the, uh, I guess it's even an upper class, middle upper class uh, at, at least, and your father was a successful businessman. And you're part, the Jewish community is part of building this new state that is that is uh, Iraq. And this nostalgia for this world becomes also a kind of future vision for what Israel could, could become. Could you tell us a little bit about the cosmopolitan city that you grew up in? Uh, cosmopolitanism is the key feature, it's the hallmark of this society that I uh, describe. Um, uh, and um, a, a way of understanding the cosmopolitanism 
in Iraq that I describe is to think about what preceded the creation of the kingdom of Iraq. What preceded it was the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire, for all its faults, was a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual uh, empire. And it spread far and wide in the Middle East. And one feature of the Ottoman Empire is that there are no borders. Now we take borders in the Middle East for granted, but there are no borders then, and you could travel very freely anywhere in the old Ottoman Empire. Another feature of the Ottoman Empire, very another positive feature, is that uh, there was a central government, uh, but the empire allowed religious and civil autonomy to all the minorities. And there were many minorities, and the Jews were one minority. There were also Muslims, of course, um, but they were the majority. But there were, other, there were minorities like Turkmen's, like Armenians, Circassians, Yazidis, and there was a, a, a tradition of religious tolerance. And these minorities uh, were left to run their own internal affairs, and by and large, they got on quite, quite well. And all this was disrupted when the Ottoman Empire collapsed at the end of the First World War, and nationalism replaced Ottomanism. Nationalism replaced this cosmopolitan um, kind of commonwealth. Um, and nationalism became the organizing principle of the post-Ottoman order, what I call the post-Ottoman syndrome. Uh, and now everything was determined by nationalism. And nationalism is very divisive and bipolar. So you're either one thing or the other. Uh, under the Ottoman Empire, we could have multiple identities. You could be a member of the Ottoman Empire, but you could also be Jewish. And um, under the post-Ottoman order, uh, you're in Palestine, for example, you're either a Jew or an Arab. And nationalism was a divisive force and a negative force. And this is something that I argue against uh, in the book. It was the opposite of the cosmopolitanism that prevailed before. Of course, the question is that your family had a good life in Baghdad, and then you left when you were five years old, the, the, the family left. Uh, why did you leave? We didn't leave of our own free will. Give, left to our own devices, we would have chosen to stay because we were a very um, privileged family, upper um, middle class family. We were very wealthy. Uh, we had a house which was like a palace. We had a lot of servants. Um, my parents had a high social status. And we had very deep roots in Iraq. Um, our roots went back to the Babylonian exile 
two and a half millennia uh, ago. And uh, we had a lot of Muslim friends. Once I asked my mother, did we have any Zionist friends? And she said, no, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing to do uh, with us. So we were children of the region. We were, um, we had been in Iraq long before the emergence of Islam in the seventh century. Um, what changed and what eventually brought about our displacement from Iraq was the birth of Israel in 1948. And my mother said to me once, when Israel was created, that, that turned everything upside down. Now, in 1948, the Iraqi army fought in Palestine, and at the end of the war, all the neighboring Arab states signed armistice agreements uh, with Israel. The armistice agreements were meant as a prelude to peace, which never came, but they remained armistice agreements that defined the borders. And these were these are the only internationally recognized borders that Israel ever had. These are the only the only borders that I still recognize as legitimate. Everything beyond the armistice lines, like the West Bank, for me is a Zionist colonial project beyond the armistice uh, lines. So uh, the Iraqi army fought in Iraq, uh, and after the Arab defeat in Palestine in 48, there was a backlash against the Jews, not just in Iraq, but throughout the Arab world. The whole political climate changed for the worst, because before we were a minority, a respected minority that lived in peace and harmony with the other minorities. Now we became the other. Now we became aliens. Before we belonged, we were children of the land. Now we became foreigners, outsiders. And worst of all, we were the allies of the Zionists who had taken over Palestine and displaced the Palestinians. So there was resentment uh, against the Zionist movement, which fed into resentment against the local Jewish communities uh, in the Arab world. Then after the 48 war, there was persecution by um, the Iraqi government of the Jews. I've already mentioned popular hostility towards the Jews, but more important was the fact that the government started persecuting the Jews and um, dismissing Jews from the government posts, uh, imposing restrictions on the activities of Jewish merchants and Jewish uh, bankers, imposing quotas on the number of Jews who could go to university. So the whole atmosphere changed for the worse against the Jews, and that was the main driver of the exodus that happened in 1950. Something else happened in 1950. 1950. The Iraqi army, uh, the Iraqi government passed a law which said any 
any Iraqi Jew who wants to leave the country is free to leave and they have a year to register and they can leave the country on a laissez-passe, uh, on a one-way visa. If they left, they wouldn't be allowed to go back. In March 1950, when this law was passed, there were 135,000 Jews in Iraq. By the end of 1952, only 10,000 or so were left. 125,000 Jews ended up uh, in Israel. And we were part of this big exodus, but we didn't choose it. It's just that life became unsafe um, for us in Iraq because there were Jews. Now, I want to add one other factor into the mix. The main driver of the exodus was persecution, but also in 1950-51, five bombs exploded in Jewish sites uh, in Baghdad. And I devote a whole chapter to the bombs, the circumstances behind the bombs, and their impact. Uh, and this is not really part of my autobiography, but it's something that I've been obsessed with since I was a child, because in Israel, Iraqi Jews always had rumors and um, repeated rumors that Israel had a hand in the bombs. And the belief that Israel had a hand in the bombs fueled the resentment of the newcomers to Israel. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I'm a historian. So I've been in interested in this subject. And it's only when I was working on this book that I came across two kinds of evidence that pointed to Israeli involvement in the bombings. One was an interview with a friend of my mother's, an elderly Iraqi Jew who was in the Zionist underground, and he described to me in great detail their activities and how they promoted the Aliyah, the um, migration of Jews to Israel. And one of the things he told me is that his colleague, Yosef Basri, was responsible for three of the five bombs. And he also told me that the controller of Yosef Basri um, was an Israeli intelligence officer called um, Max Binet. So that was one pointer to Israeli involvement in the bombings. But more important was a document that he gave me, which is an Iraqi police document that mentions Basri by name, mentions his interrogation after he was captured, mentions what he said in the interrogation. Uh, and then I followed the trial of Basri, and he was charged with three out of the five bombs. This is significant because Basri was tortured. 
So if the Iraqi police wanted to um, saddle him with responsibility for all five bombs, they could have done so, but they didn't. They only charged him for the three bombs for which they, they had evidence. So I concluded that Israel was involved in the bomb, that an Israeli intelligence officer um, through the Zionist underground in Iraq played a part in frightening the Jews, in creating a panic, in making the Jews feel insecure, and um, in uh, uprooting them from Iraq to um, Israel. Now, my Zionist critics say to me that I fabricated this story, that Israel was not involved at all. Well, that's complete rubbish because I've put forward incontrovertible evidence. But others say that I exaggerate the impact of the bombs, that it's the persecution and anti-Semitism that drove the Jews out, and I just focus on the bombs. My answer to them is that I cannot assess the relative weight of the different factors behind the exodus. But if I knew that not a single Jew left Iraq because of the bombs, uh, then I would still indict Israel. I would still think that this was a real, real indictment of Israel, because Israel was created to provide a safe haven for the Jews after the Holocaust, and therefore had Israel absolutely no business in planting bombs in order to frighten the Jews who had deep roots in Iraq, uh, to frighten them into leave everything behind and to move to the new states of Israel. So this is a real indictment of Zionism in its uh, attitude towards the Jews of um, the Arab lands. And our experience, that of Iraqi Jews, the individual experience varied, but the experience for the community as a whole is like that of a tree which is pulled up by the roots. A traumatic, a traumatic event in the history of the Jewish community in Iraq. Then it's uh, reading it. It's, it's outrageous to read it. I never knew that that the Israeli state was creating these this, uh, threats to Jewish lives outside Israel. And as you know in the book, it does challenge a dominant narrative about the creation of the state of Israel as a safe haven for Jews being persecuted elsewhere. Another, for me, surprising and scandalous um, thing in, in the book is the description of the Iraqis arriving in Israel, uh, arriving at, at the airport, being sprayed with DDT pesticide to be disinfected, like, it, like they were animals uh, arriving. Could you tell about the arrival of, of, the, uh, of the Arab Jews in, in the new Israeli state? So there was a lot of Zionist propaganda about the new states of Israel, um, the promised land. Um, and um, that played a part in persuading some Jews who were undecided to take the plunge and to register and to go to Israel. And Jews couldn't go to any other country. They could only leave without a passport and a one-way visa. They could only go to Israel, 
and the Zionist movement organized transport planes from Baghdad to Israel via Nicosia, via Cyprus. And at first the planes went from Baghdad to Cyprus and then other planes to, um, to uh, Tel Aviv, but then they could go directly from Baghdad to Tel Aviv, to the airport. And the Jews who chose this means of transport were allowed one suitcase and 50 dinars. Uh, so when they arrived in Israel, they were penniless and they were trapped. But there was also the cultural shock for them. When they arrived at the airport, um, they were sprayed with DDT, with in pesticide. And this was deeply humiliating. And that was the first impression of the promised land. And then from the airport, they were taken to Marbarot, to transit camps. Um, because there was no, Israel was only two years old and um, there was no housing for them. So they're put in transit camps in tents and in metal shacks. And the conditions were very, very poor, very primitive. And the hygiene conditions were also very poor. Uh, and the attitude of the managers of the Marbarot was not sympathetic to the newcomers. They were all Ashkenazi, and they had no idea about the achievements and the status and the rich cultural heritage of the uh, newcomers. Uh, and if they complained, then they said to them, you know, you should be grateful for what you are getting because um, you would have, you know, there would have been an, another Holocaust where you came from, and here uh, Israel has come to the rescue, and you should be grateful for what you are getting. So the period of transition was a very painful one, and for some Jews in the Marbarot, it took years before they could get some uh, housing. So the state of Israel did not really welcome them, did not treat them uh, well, and uh, for the rest of their lives in Israel, Israel was a European-style state. It was created, it was established by European Jews. It had a European orientation, uh, and everything Arab was considered inferior. Arabic was considered an ugly language and the language of the enemy. So there were a lot of cultural hurdles placed in the path of the newcomers. And I talk about my own experience as a five-year-old boy uh, in Israel, and I felt sense of inferiority because I was an Iraqi in a European society that looked down on anything that was Arab. And uh, I speak very frankly about the fact that I had an inferiority complex on account of being an Iraqi boy, and this sense of inferiority defined my relationship with Israeli society. And at, this is in, in the after the Second World War, the period of decolonization is, is ahead of us. This is where a lot of Britain is losing a lot of its colonies. We see 
countries becoming independent. But there is a, a, a way of thinking in Israel as we are the civilization there, uh, and there you have some quotes from David Ben Goyon in the book where they it's, it seems like there's almost a colonial mindset that we come with the European higher civilization to a backwards part of of uh, of the world. How did you experience that growing up? I didn't understand this at the time. I was a young boy. I saw Israel developing at a phenomenal pace, houses going up, an economy being built, de developing, uh, connections with the outside world, which I hadn't experienced before. So I was very impressed with what I witnessed around me. But the state of Israel was an Ashkenazi trick, and I wasn't, I didn't fully understand it, and I wasn't part of it. But later in life, uh, as a student, of uh, Middle East politics, I began to understand the importance of colonialism in all of this, um, because uh, Israel was a colonial movement. Israel, the Zionist movement, would not have succeeded, could not have taken over um, Palestine without the support of Britain, of the colonial movement, Going back to the Balfour Declaration of 1917, it's the Balfour Declaration that enabled the Zionist takeover of uh, Palestine, a process that goes on to this day. Um, and uh, two things happened in 1948. Uh, stage one was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, which happened during the war. Three quarters of a million Palestinians became refugees. They were driven out. They did not leave of their own accord. Uh, the Zionist movement carried out the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, but it, it was very short of manpower because there were only 600,000 Jews in Palestine at the end of the war. So they desperately needed Aliyah. They desperately needed Jews from wherever they uh, could get him, could uh, get them, including resorting to terrorism in order to force Jews to come to uh, Israel. And the same colonial mindset, the same institutions that had carried out the ethnic cleansing of Palestine now dealt with the uprooting and the absorption of the Jews from the Arab lands in Israel. So colonialism is all important. I want to make a little jump here because we don't have too much time left. In the, the last part of the book is a very concentrated uh, trajectory of your reflections on, on Zionism and your reflections on the state of Israel. It's a very, very uh, intellectually challenging and politically, yes, uh, Fruitful uh, reading. It's very, it's a very, very good ending of the, um, of the book. And you describe here how you, for many years, you thought politically, realistically, the two-state solution was the only way forward. But then you, 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 you changed that, and and now it's the you've said you've touched, uh, you you've touched yourself. You have personal in your personal history, in fact, that you've seen. Um, Arabs and Israelis living, uh, Arabs and Jews living together in, in harmony. And this 
childhood memory becomes kind of a future vision for uh, for what Israel could become. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, yes, that's a very good summary of the book because the narrative only goes up to when I was 18, but the epilogue um, traces my uh, journey from the age of 18 to today when I am 78. Um, and um, the essential point in this journey is what you just said, that most of my life I supported a two-state solution. It, a two-state solution wasn't perfect justice for the Palestinians, but there is no such a thing as absolute justice in the real world. So the Palestinians, when the PLO, when it signed the Oslo Accord in 1993, gave up its claim to um, four-fifths of a historic Palestine, to 78% of Palestine, uh, in return for what they hoped would be independence on the remaining 22%, that's uh, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and a capital city in Jerusalem. But it was not to be. Um, the Oslo peace process collapsed when the Likud under uh, Benjamin Netanyahu came back to power in 1996 after the murder of the architect of Oslo, of Yitzhak Rabin. So the Palestinians were a genuine partner for peace and they were prepared to settle for a fifth of their homeland. But for the right-wing Zionists, this was not enough. Um, and for me, I had to reassess my position. Israel killed the two-state solution by means of the settlements uh, on the West Bank uh, uh, and by means of the security wall on the West Bank, which annexes annexes a chunk of the West Bank to Israel. So Israel, by its policy of the creeping annexation of the West Bank and the actual annexation, formal annexation of Jerusalem, killed the two-state solution. So uh, I had to ask myself, what solution do I support? And there is only one democratic solution, only one democratic solution, which is one state uh, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of um, religion and ethnicity. Um, there is no other democratic solution. And the reality today is that of a one state. Uh, and it's a, an apartheid state, which controls the whole area from the river to the sea. It's an apartheid state, and under the present government, it's increasingly and overtly a Jewish supremacy state. This is, to me, unacceptable. I think all Jews have a moral duty to support Palestinian independence. And since, since Israel nullified and negated Palestinian independence on a fifth of their homeland, the only way forward um, is equal rights. Uh, and equal, 
equality uh, is an essential element of democracy. And there is no democracy in Israel and the occupied territories. There is an ethnocracy. One ethnic group dominates um, uh, the other. So I insist on equality and on equal rights. And the only way to achieve that is within one state. And, and the people would say here that for that to happen, Israel, Israelis would have to accept either becoming a small majority or minority in their own country, and they would have to give up the claim that it was a, a, a Jewish state. And the political path to that decision seems very long, not least at the moment. So since 1967, Israel had a choice, land or peace, but it couldn't have both. And by its actions, Israel clearly opted for land over peace with the, with the uh, Palestinians. And after the collapse of Oslo, this um, dilemma reasserted itself. And the choice again uh, became, does Israel want land or peace? Uh, sorry, uh, does Israel, uh, the, the dilemma was, uh, does Israel want to be a Jewish state or a democratic state? It couldn't be both because the Arabs in the meantime have become almost the majority. Um, so um, there was a public opinion poll and I believe that 64% of Israelis said, if they have to choose, between being a democratic state and a Jewish state, they choose to be a Jewish state. And the present government reflects that dominant trend in Israeli society, which is a shift to the right, a shift towards Jewish nationalism, a shift towards be becoming um, a, a Jewish supremacy state. The two ministers in the present government who are extremists, who are fascists, and that uh, that's Itamar Ben Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, who are overtly fascists, uh, who want to formally who want the ethnic cleansing of the West Bank and Gaza and the formal annexation of the West Bank. So they are open about it. And I believe that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is also a fascist. He was democratically elected, but he denies that Palestinians have any political rights um, in, on the West Bank. So we have, um, we have in Israel the most right-wing, extreme, uh, overtly racist government Uh, in his Jewish supremacist government in Israel's entire uh, history. So this is where I part way, uh, I part path with the state of Israel. My, my last question is now we're in this horrible, horrible war going on in front of the whole world is watching. Uh, people are protesting, humanitarian organizations are, 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 are protesting. One day this war will end eventually. Uh, what is your hope for what could happen the first day after the war? What would be the best first step uh, when the war ends? 
Um, my scenario for the day after um, is that there would be a, a Palestinian election and the Palestinians would choose their own government, whereas at the moment, um, the colonial powers, America and Europe, want to reimpose the Palestinian Authority on Gaza. That's unacceptable and it's undemocratic. Um, uh, uh, and it doesn't make sense to impose the Palestinian Authority on the back of, of Israeli tanks. So the first thing I'd like to see is the Palestinians having elections and choosing their own government. And the public opinion polls show that today, if there was an election, the, the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, and the Palestinian Authority would receive 16% of the vote, and Hamas would get 60% of the vote. And I want to remind your readers that in January 2006, there was a fair and free elections, and Hamas won an absolute majority, but Israel and its Western allies refused to recognize the government and drove Hamas out of power. So um, my scenario for the day after is Palestinian elections choosing their own form of government, both for the West Bank and for the Gaza Strip. Well, thank you. It's been such a privilege talking to you. Thank you so much for your book, for your reflection. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. It's been a pleasure. Det var min samtale med Avi Schleim. Den bog, vi talte om, hedder Three World Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Hvis man gerne vil læse andre bøger af Avi Schleim, så er hans absolute hovedværk bogen, der hedder The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World fra 1999. Det er et mere akademisk værk. Den er så tyk, så hvis man taber den ned over sin egen fødder, så risikerer man at få ondt i tæerne. Den her samtale var ligesom de foregående samtaler produceret og redigeret af vores vidunderlige venner og hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge, der har vi den samtale, vi egentlig havde annonceret til den her uge. Det er med den kinesiske forsker Min Seng Pei, som har skrevet den bog, der meget vel kan blive det definitive værk om Kinas nye overvågningsstat. Den hedder The Sentinel State og udkommer i februar. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak fordi du lyttede med, og godt nytår.